All right, guys, I know it's been a while since I have come to you with an episode. Uh, I'll be honest, I've just uh, been looking at a lot of low motivation, low inspiration levels. Uh, you know, have this thing where I want to bring the hot take, the, the fresh take, the thing that is uniquely helpful that, you know, not a gajillion other guys are already saying and already saying uh, better. And so I've just avoided recording, um, you know, add into that a high dose of cynicism, not wanting to simply uh, point out the hypocrisy of hypocrites, but also present a positive vision, etc., etc. Now that said, those, those thoughts, those pressures have never kept Brian Stelter from producing content. Brian Stelter has never thought, you know what, is what I'm saying actually useful? No, he just does his duty to you, the listener. And Brian Stelter is my hero. So if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. That said, here is another episode. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I said those who bring evil against me will not prosper. I said those who stand in the dark can never come into the light. All praise be to the one and only true God, Jesus Christ. So a lot has happened since I last published an episode, um, and so I've got a few stories to tell you, stories that I've either heard or experienced in life. The first is one of experience that leads to a question, should we count on justice from the courts? Should we count on justice from the courts? And that question arises from a story that is is close to home. There's a guy that I uh, oftentimes subcontract for uh, up here in Idaho who was preaching the gospel um, at a Planned Parenthood locally. And, you know, when you compare the volume and the content of his preaching to a lot of the stuff that we regularly did in California. Uh, you know, he's a very respectful guy, a uh, very well-composed guy, nothing over the top, nothing questionable. In fact, wasn't even using electronic amplification to make himself heard over the distance between where you're allowed to stand and the Planned Parenthood doors, but was using one of those uh, male cheerleader, uh, you know, cone things, right? Uh, well, we've mentioned this before, uh, on the podcast, but in the town of Meridian, which touts itself as being, uh, the lowest crime community in America, they do abortions. And then they also cite people for disturbing the peace. If, uh, you can be heard at over 50 feet away and the individual hearing you at over 50 feet away is willing to, um, file a complaint. So 50 feet is not that far, 
it's not hard to hear someone 50 feet away. That means it's really impossible to preach the gospel in the town of Meridian if people don't like what uh, they're hearing. And interesting enough, uh, Idaho is pretty anti-preaching. And I think it's a product of the institutional power, the, the, the dance of institutional power between Mormons and the seculars. Uh, it's kind of a stupid thing to call them, but you know what I mean. Uh, you've got the, the straight-up lefties, and then you have the Mormons. Neither group is going to tolerate Christian preaching. Because Christian preaching, at the end of the day, is the biggest threat to the institutional power of both groups. Uh, my friend Keith Darrell, Campus Preacher, Campus Preacher podcast, goes around preaching um, beautifully at college campuses in America, you know, for him, he's going to run into the issue of the difference between a private campus and a public campus because private campuses have a lot more control about who's allowed to be there. Whereas public campuses, you know, that's that's public land. So you've got a right to be there and you have a right to uh, be a free man there, supposedly. But he was preaching, um, let's see, what is the, is the spring... So I think he was preaching in the fall and was arrested, uh, actually arrested at Boise State for preaching the gospel and for disturbing the peace. Well, my friend that I subcontract for uh, was cited. Um, I, I don't know if he was arrested, but he refused to pay the citation because the citation's invalid, right? You, you can't find somebody validly for preaching the gospel. It's invalid to do so. When he's out in a public space, right? Not not up in someone's private space. So he refuses to pay. It, it goes to court. The trial ends up being like a two-year process in large part due to interruptions from the, the vid. Well, he gets a trial by jury and naively... Um, basically ignoring how insane society is and how far off from the mark uh, Mormons and lefties are. Discounting that, not giving it its due place in my mind, in my thinking, I expected once I heard that it was going to trial by jury that he was fine. You know, what jury is going to convict a guy for preaching the gospel? That's like, you know, that's, that's like an apple pie, uh, hot dog with onions, mustard, and relish on it at a football game. Kind of American thing to do. Preach the gospel. Well, lo and behold, last week, the week before Easter, uh, my friend was convicted, found guilty of disturbing the peace for preaching the gospel in Meridian, Idaho. And Idaho has a lot of great things going for it in terms of low regulation, right? So you are, uh, you don't have to be as worried about getting treated as a criminal here for firearm use as you would in California. And it's easier to become a general contractor, for example. It's easier to start a business here. Uh, it is not easier to open your mouth freely. E even in the most restricted times, of the vid, um, 
the, the police officers where I was explicitly defended my right to speak freely, to speak my peace. And even when things got hot and contentious, they did not shut me down to make their lives easier. Uh, whereas here, you know, guys like David Parsons are going to cite you. They're going to want to arrest you. Juries will convict you for disturbing the peace, for preaching a gospel. So, uh, back to the question, should we expect justice from courts? And I'm not saying, well, so my answer is no. What I'm not saying is that we'll, ne- we'll never get a good decision from a court. What I am saying is that when you get a good decision from a court, count that as a freebie, but don't strategize around an expectation of fair, just, equitable treatment in the court system, okay? Our court system uh, is made up of judges from our society, okay? We have courts appropriate to our society or to their society, rather. We are in an alien land dominated by an alien people and they own the courts and they do not give us fair and just treatment in those courts. Sometimes we get it, but we ought not expect it. Remember the uh, Ahmad Arbery incident? I think three men were sentenced to life in prison for simply acting reasonably. And their, their problem was not that they acted reasonably. Their vulnerability was how integrated into the multicultural space of our enemies, right? They, they, they were. That made them vulnerable. In terms of strategy, if you don't believe you are going to get fair treatment by the courts, it, it, that's not then cause to despair, uh, to do nothing, but it should, I think, uh, direct our strategy in, in what we do, how we go about it, right? Um, and, and this, I think, I think this case and this conviction, uh, just further emphasizes the truth of, Scott, the the truth and goodness of Scott Tungay's neo-Amish push, right? Where it's, um, it's not a, a, a retreat, a cultural retreat, but a strategic building in light of enemy positions, right? The, the Amish, uh, own land, own skills, own assets. They don't sell out. They accumulate within their own group. And a result of that is that they are able to live their lives as they please, to build and act, move and breathe as they please with real freedom in spite of being in a dramatically alien land. And it allows them to not get all twisted up about, you know, drama between Brad Little and Ammon Bundy for example, or, you know, the, 
hypocrisy of the Republican Party. They don't care because they are living free lives because they have intentionally acquired and accumulated skills and assets that they keep within their group. Um, and so for us, you know, it's that with with the, the, the positive use and dominion of technology and then, um, you know, pro- an increased evangelistic flavor that doesn't then uh, lead to the uh, evangelical vulnerability to uh, corruption and decay. Uh, the, the, the more integrated and dependent on our enemies we are for basic living, the more vulnerable we will be to kangaroo courts. Um, now, that is not in any way a criticism of my friend that was just found guilty. He's, you know, he's appealing and um, gratefully, uh, there's one of those civil rights law groups that is going to pick up the tab, I think. Uh, you know, he honestly is, is probably going to have to have surgery in the upcoming days to repair damage to his lower back because of how big his balls are. Uh, by being willing to, knowing the consequence, stand uh, and preach. you know. But even with him, uh, if he loses in the courts... And even if some group picks up the tab, that's the precedent. And in light of that precedent, you know, he's not going to be able to act like that never happened. Um, You know, he's got to live. And so do we want to, and maybe, maybe we, maybe we do, maybe you do uh, just keep going back to court or uh, do we build up, um, our reserves, our material, so that on the day of advancement, we do so in force and with speed and ferocity. Those are, uh, those are some of my initial thoughts in light of that atrocious conviction. Speaking of justice and or injustice, what do you think of John Wilkes Booth? And what would you think if I told you John Wilkes Booth is an American hero? Let's talk about it. John Wilkes Booth, after the war between the states is over, assassinates Abraham Lincoln in a theater. Most people's take is going to be That is an act of injustice. Here's why his action was completely valid. And the only downside to it was his inability to get away with it. Now, if you, if you view, if you view that war as one between a righteous North versus an unrighteous South, there's not going to be really any way uh, to look at Booth as a good guy. That's not, it's not possible. I understand that. If you look at it from a Southern perspective or a Southern friendly perspective, then what you're looking at is 
a war of completely unwarranted aggression from Lincoln. And under Lincoln, a war that involved um, the targeting of civilians, many murders, many rapes, much pillaging, looting, burning. Now, if if there was a warlord or a king of another people that came to your land and did that to you and did it successfully and conquered and then occupied your land and you were able to, to make it to a party that he was at and at that party not even just poison him like a woman but stab him to death would that be justified behavior if if there was let's say you're an Israelite in the time of the old covenant and a king leads his pagan nation to conquer and occupy your land in a context where that happens because of the sins of your land. And you pretend to have a message for him. And you're able to make it into his inner chamber. And there you stab him to death and flee. Are you a hero or a villain? Well, Ehud is in the Bible as a hero. And so depending on how you fundamentally view the war between the states... If you see it from a Southern perspective, Booth isn't a bad guy. Booth is taking a reasonable response after defeat to the pillaging, raping, murdering, burning of his land and people. So here's to you, John Wilkes Booth. And here's to justice outside of conventional means. All right, what's left on the docket? Well, a couple good stories, a question about a story writer, namely Wendell Berry, and then the best story. Okay, a couple good stories. I have been using the Canon Plus app. I stopped using the Canon app when it was super glitchy. Uh, it just wasn't, it, it wasn't useful to me. You know, it wouldn't save my, my place in a book. Um... It wouldn't play unless I had the app open. I stopped using it. Well, anyway, they they revamped the app, and it's it's pretty slick. Uh, it looks good. It's easy to use. It saves your spot. Uh, so here's to you, Canon, for a great app. And I've been using that app to listen to some RJ Rush Dooney. Interestingly enough, I heard him while listening to his Systematic Theology of the Land um, explain the complete reasonableness and justice of God's laws regarding mixed cloth and mixed seed. Um, and I think it might have been the first time I've ever heard someone explain those laws that way. And then the very next day, the the harmful effects of seed hybridization and cloth hybridization came up in natural conversation. Uh, so what do you know? Providence. 
I was also listening to Rush Dooney on The American Indian, and I was doing that because uh, my friend Kyle recommended it. It was a book that he had just recently listened to, I think while he was on deployment. Rush Dooney, if I understand correctly, like Edwards, was a missionary for a time to the American Indian. And he's got a couple stories that are 100% worth you knowing. Uh, so first, all right, so when you when you come into uh, new manhood, right, you're, you're trying to establish where you are in the hierarchy, in the pecking order, right? Because uh, if you're going to establish yourself in life, you're only going to do so uh, well, you're, you're going to do so in light of where you stand in the hierarchy. And obviously you, you, you want to build your standing through life, but especially when you jump into manhood, status is a big deal. Competition is a huge deal among your peers. And so in, in one particular tribe, you know, a young man could challenge another young man to a competition. Let's say, you know, shooting, a, shooting a bow, you know, at a target or a foot race, Right. Now, if I challenge you and I lose, uh, that guy gets to scalp me, right? Now, that sounds extreme because it is, right? No more hair, no more skin on the scalp. Huge shame, permanent marker of your defeat, right? Now, does that mean permanent disgrace and inability to establish yourself in the tribe as a man with your own family, with your own squaw, etc., etc.? Well... No, even if you lose and even if you get scalped, you can still get a wife and have a well-respected, high-status life. How? The only way you can maintain status, even grow your status and get a girl is if while being scalped, instead of making any noise of pain or even facially whimpering, if you're able to keep the girls who are definitely watching this competition, right? Girls always watch competition between young men. That's where cheerleaders come from. If you're able to keep those onlooking girls giggling while you get scalped, because instead of being in pain, you, uh, you know, you, you're able to maintain quick wit, good humor, all that good stuff. Keep the, keep the birds laughing. Keep the birds twittering. Uh, you can, you can get a wife, right? Now, that's crazy. I'll just let you meditate on what that means for how you should conduct yourself as a man. But it's, it's pretty impressive. Now, the, the other story has to do with the negative effects of welfare, right? When everything's provided for you, um, how, how, how that decays a man from the inside out. You know, and there was a guy that used to be full of vitality and then entering old age was really decrepit. Couldn't move very easily body wasn't working great, very slow. He goes out with his grandkids to, you know, I think by some kind of lake and he's just relaxing in the sun. Uh, you know, a nice little afternoon spent in a, on a sunny day and he lays back with his hat over his face and he's sleeping. Well, he's woken up with a start by his granddaughter who screams, you know, granddad, there is a rattlesnake on you. There's a rattlesnake on you. And he tips his hat up and he sees a snake crawling across his torso well, fast as a grasshopper, Grandpa bounces up and back just in time that as the snake strikes out to bite him, it only momentarily snags his clothing. Well, after, after Grandpa catches his breath and you know, kind of comes to himself, gathers himself together after that high adrenaline moment, 
he realizes just how fast he had moved, just how limber he had shown himself to be. And he thinks with accuracy, well, if I can move that fast, I can probably work. Well, he starts to be more active, starts to work. All of a sudden, Grandpa, it's like he is de-aged, reversed time, Benjamin Button style, by decades. All his, all his physical problems just disappear and vanish. Mentality, anti-welfare, working hard, male strength. It's a good story. Here's a question about a storyteller. Wendell Berry. You know, educated guys, guys who have a good sense of life, who have pride in their people and their place, they love Wendell Berry. And so, right, if I want to be an educated guy who loves my people in place, that must mean I've got to read Wendell Berry. Now, what I didn't know is that all these guys reading Wendell Berry were reading his articles where he talks about farming and the environment. I, uh, in... You know, I, I feel old and I'm getting up in age, but in my youthful haste, I just assume they're talking about his books. So I snag a book and I listen to it. And I started with A Place on Earth, in parentheses, Port William. Uh, I realize that, I realize pretty quickly that I love it. That it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. I also hate it because it's one of the saddest books. And as I read it, I kind of held out hope that there would be redemption in the end. And yet it just stayed sad because the, the redemption Wendell Berry gives is, the, uh, is a thought at the end of a man's life of the cyclical interplay between man's labor and uh, the land's renewal. Now, what makes Wendell Berry good? At least, and I'm, I'm no expert. I'm not a PhD. I met a guy who's a PhD who loves Wendell Berry, and I'm sure he could give you a much better take. Me, I have read one and a half Wendell Berry books. I've listened to one and a half Wendell Berry books. Here's my take so far. An incredible rhythm to his sentences that makes it meditative and enjoyable. He doesn't drag in his storytelling. Uh, amazing insight into the human experience. Um, inspiring love of the small town and the good, honest work. An honest appraisal of the impotence of much of rural Christianity, of, of Gnostic Christianity that has no idea about where it is or the pains and pleasures of being there. Now, that honesty of what is often impotent means, I don't, and I'm not even saying he necessarily has an agenda. He might just be, he might just be an honest guy about some place he's conceived of or a real place. Um, and it might just be lacking what it's lacking because it actually is. But if he's just telling a story from, you know, his, his belief set, then the issue is with all his honesty about life and the pain and disappointment and failure and isolation of life, he doesn't have 
uh, he doesn't have an incarnated hope. He doesn't have resurrection power. He doesn't have inevitable victory laced through his story. And so you're just getting beat by the reality of thorns and you're not getting that counterbalanced by any any real hope. The the so and, and you know even in terms of like how he chose to end a place on earth um it's during World War II two sons of different families both go to war. Uh, so both are absent. And, and so in that sense, both are missing. They're missing from their place. One named Virgil, Virgil, Virgil Feltner, he is formally missing. He's MIA. The other's not MIA. And though you're not reading his letters to his uncle, you read a continual stream of his uncle uncle's letters to him. Okay. Now, in a book full of disappointment and death and, and isolation and failure, uh, if it ended with the return of the nephew, that is a kind of beat. That's an intentional kind of beat to end with, right? That's a major note. But instead, it ends with Virgil's father, Matt, uh, walking on a formerly farmed property that has now become overgrown by forest. And he's finding pleasure in the fact that no matter how hard he works, eventually the, for, for, the forest is going to reclaim all of his tilled land. And I tell you what, that's a different kind of note to end on. And I don't think that's accidental. The, the biggest um, sense of victory in the book outside of the simple goodness of belonging to a town that is throughout the book, Matt is wrestling with the reality that his son is dead and he's grieving and he's frustrated, he's angry. And his wife makes a comment. Uh, she, she's talking to him about how she has always known his death since her son was born She's always loved him as one who would die. And so his death is not this new shocking reality for her. She's always loved him as one who would die. What she has and is grateful for and is living out of moving forward is that she had him. Now that's beautiful, but it doesn't beat death, right? So that's... Uh, it's, it's like the best you can do if death gets the last word. And if death, if death gets the last word, it's really hard to convince yourself not to kill yourself, which one of his characters does. And I don't love a super honest meditation that leaves you with the real plausibility of suicide. Uh... And I feel like that's what Wendell Berry does. Now, if you listen to Wendell Berry, if you're a Wendell Berry connoisseur and I'm missing something, uh, please reach out to me because, man, he makes me sad. Now, I'm going to keep listening to him because he's elevated and um, I don't know. Yeah, I want to be elevated. And I, I enjoy the rhythm of the tune he he plays. But goodness gracious,
it is uh, devastatingly sad. The saddest thing I have read in years, if not the saddest book I've ever read, was A Place on Earth, Port William by Wendell Berry. Interestingly enough, I, I listened to this saddest book ever uh, and finish it coming up on Easter, which makes the dramatic assertion that the the last note is not one of death. Uh, it's not even one of the undoing of your labors, but it is one of resurrection, of life over death and the vindication of our labors over the thorns and thistles of the wilderness. And speaking of the wilderness, I just want to highlight for you, and you've probably already thought about this. Um, I want to highlight for you uh, the the role of expiation in the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, a, a listener recently asked me to explain expiation, and so I want to talk to you about the role of expiation in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection particularly as it pertains to what we see in Leviticus regarding the scapegoat, right? So in Le- in Leviticus, there was one goat that was sacrificed before the Lord. Another goat had the sin of the camp put on it and then was cast out into the wilderness to return no more, right? And, and what's being imaged there is how in the death of Christ our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Our sin and all that comes with it is taken away from us. It's removed from us. It's taken to the grave, to the land of the dead. Uh, That's that's what uh, Christ expiates our sin as our scapegoat. He removes it from us. He takes it away. Now, with the resurrection, what you have is the first scapegoat who returns and brings no curse back, no sin back with him. Christ, as our scapegoat, took our sin out of the camp into the land of the dead. But he returns in resurrection, not bringing back our sin but bringing back resurrection life to share with us so that in him having this resurrection life, unlike the, the vanity that dominates the Wendell Berry story, we actually do not toil in vain. We, we do not labor in vain only to be to, to only to be betrayed by ourselves or, or the, our future generations, but we toil in victory. We live in, in purified resurrection life. And we have certain victory guaranteed for us ahead uh, because our scapegoat returned from the land of the dead glorified. And as he is, so too shall we be. Are we and increasingly shall be. Uh, It's good news it is the reason, you know, you see people talking about black pill versus white pill. You know, you can white pill without cause or you can white pill because of the resurrection. And that's what we want to do uh, in light of Easter. So with that, God bless. Go work hard. It's not in vain. Uh, we will win. Uh, let's let's acquire skills and assets for our people. Keep it within house, in-house. Accumulate 
and then, uh, you know, multiply within the ranks, build for the future. Uh, don't trust horses and chariots, but don't, don't despair because you can't trust horses and chariots. We have Jehovah, we have Christ, the resurrected King. So we white pill and we work, we work not in vain, but we work smart and strategically. God bless.